You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 169. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be meeting Miranda Beverly Whittemore, who is a New York Times bestselling author of five novels. Her latest, Fierce Little Thing, is a psychological thriller that explores the monstrous secrets that linger amongst old friendships. The book is available now, so you can order it from your favorite bookseller. A reminder to please rate and review this podcast on your favorite app. It helps getting the word out to others. And do check out my website at thrillerauthors.com for show notes, to access my archive of over 160 interviews, and to join the Thrilling Reads mailing list where you can get deals on mystery and thriller books. All right, here is my interview with... Miranda Beverly Whittemore. Miranda is a New York Times bestselling author of five novels, and her latest novel, A Fierce Little Thing, was just published uh, on the 27th. We're recording this on the 28th, so that was just yesterday. So congratulations. Yay, thank you so much. Yeah, so how's the first 24 hours going of the new book launch? <laughs> Pretty great. I mean, this is my fifth book, and the first book I've published in a pandemic. So it's very isolated. I mean, it's already such a strange day anyway, but I basically spent the day in my house on social media. And then I did a book event, but it was virtual. Um, and that was wonderful, but it was so weird not to like be able to hug anybody involved in the process. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. It'd probably be a, 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 another year or so, huh? But for things Hopefully, start going back a little bit back to normal, but who knows? Yeah, now. who knows? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, soon. Yeah. Uh, so, can you tell us a little bit about your background, please? You mean my life, where yeah. I'm from, who yeah, I am? But, yeah. Before you started <laughs> writing uh, novels, uh, what led you to that uh, to that part That's of your a life? Great question. Um, I grew up all over the place. My parents are my father's an anthropologist, and my mother's an ethnographer and writer. And so, I actually spent three of the first six years of my life living in a small Senegalese village. Um, and we were really integrated into that community in a way that was, I mean, I really didn't speak English. Um, I, you know, I spoke a, a, a tribal language, and I lived in a very, very traditional way. And then um, we moved back to rural Vermont when I was six, so I could start first grade. And it was a really jarring transition, as you might imagine. Um, and my parents had another baby. And then we moved to Oregon for a large chunk of my childhood. And then I, I came to college um, at Vassar. I went to Vassar, um, which was uh, in um, in at Poughkeepsie. And I fell in love with someone there who was now my husband. And we moved to New York for 20 years. And uh, then now we live in Vermont again. So uh, a pandemic move. So um, we, yeah, we lived, you know, I, I was an actor as a child and I really wanted to be part of theater a lot. Um, and I thought that would be my life. And then I went to Vassar where there's a strong theater program. And I realized that I really didn't want to be part of, uh, it was a very professional kind of theater program. There were a lot of people who were in that program who had been on television or acted on Broadway. And of course that makes sense because it's, it's in pro close proximity to New York, but I was from the West coast. So I didn't really have any access to that world at all. Um, and so then I just found myself suddenly gravitating towards the English department. I mean, as I said, my mother's a writer, so I definitely had thought about that life, but I had never thought of it for myself. And then I wrote a my senior thesis was about my experience of living in the Senegalese village. It was a novel in verse. And I loved the process of writing it. 
And then I got a job working at the Poetry Center at the 92nd Street Y in New York City after college, um, basically uh, helping run the reading series, which included you know, um, contracts and going through making sure that people had the right um, headshots. And then when when a writer would show up, um, making sure that they had, you know, a glass of water and that they were happy backstage. And um, through that process, I met people like Toni Morrison and Jose Saramago and Philip Roth and, um, you know, really Seamus Heaney, really amazing writers. And I, I think it was that was the first moment that I thought like, oh, this could be a career. I didn't even think of that yet. <laughs> so it took me a while to get there. I was in my early 20s at that point. And um, then I basically sat down and wrote. Um, I I'd sent I'd sent, had sent that first novel and verse out very early um, to agents. And I'd actually gotten representation, which then had dissolved. And so then I basically sent it out again to the person who's now been my agent since I was in my early 20s. I'm now in my mid 40s. And uh, she said, I can't publish this. It's a novel in in verse about a small West African village, but I would love to be your agent. I'd love to see something else from you. So I wrote another book and I sent it to her and she said, I'd love to be your agent. <laughs> and then we sold that book. And that was my first novel, The Effects of Light, which came out in 2005. Wow. Was that also like a, a mystery thriller type book? You know, it was my first two novels were more kind of like straight up literary fiction. I mean, I think I've been thinking about this a lot. I think one of the tricky parts about what I write is that it's it's both genre. It, it's, a, it's thriller, psychological thriller in many ways, um, or a gothic thriller sometimes. But then I also write also, I also write those forms as a literary fictionist. Mm. So um, I have this kind of, I, I, I love, I love beautiful prose. And it's really important to me to have that be integrated into the, um, into this kind of like page turny. I think of it as kind of like, I, I write books like the books I want to read when I'm on vacation. Um, So I write books that have this kind of literary slant. So I've been kind of describing Fierce Little Thing as a literary psychological thriller, um, which I don't know if that makes it more or less appealing to people. Uh, But I think that's probably the most honest way to describe it. Yeah, there's so many uh, different uh, categories and subgenres now. You look at Amazon, it's like... I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize that that was Isn't already that a little category. So funny, I know, I know, I, it's so true. I mean, there must be like a thousand categories on Amazon just for books. Well, and in fact, when my editor, who I'm really close to, because she and I edited um, Bittersweet together, and she acquired my fourth novel, June, um, so we really wanted to work together. She's now at a new publishing house, and we work together on Fierce Little Thing. You know, we we have a very close relationship, so it's actually really fun because she send me she she asks me what I think it should be classified as, which I think a lot of editors probably don't ask mm-hmm. the writers. And we had a kind of a back and forth back before she, you know, um, officially kind of like filed the, the whatever you need to do to kind of put that in with all the powers that be at various um, books, you know, book sales. And as a, it's a really interesting process to talk about like, well, is this a psychological thriller? What, what, what does that mean? You know, um, fascinating. 
Yeah, yeah, so confusing too, because yeah, this is psychological thrillers, and all of a sudden now I'm hearing more domestic thriller. I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I know. What does it all mean? <laughs> what yeah. does it all mean? Yeah, in the end, this, the, the story is all that matters in the end, anyway. But this is so true. Yeah, it's this the business, so though. I think that's good too, because you, like you mentioned, you came out, you had a, you had a pretty good background on the business part of it when you were on that job that you had. So that probably helps it was, a lot. It was incredibly helpful to see what an editor does and what a publicist does and what a writer is expected to do. Um, it was definitely, uh, I mean, it was really coming up through that. There's my friend, Joanna Rakoff has a wonderful um, uh, b- uh, new movie out about based on her novel, my, Sal- my her memoir, My Salinger Year, which is about um, the year in her life that she worked at an agency. And we, we've known we're quite, quite close now, but we didn't realize that we um, actually were friends that we actually must have known each other because she had that job at that agency around the same time that I was doing a job at the poetry center. And they're very similar kind of way to learn about uh, that whole publishing world, which is like completely its own beast um, in great and challenging ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's what I, I get people to ask me sometimes about, Oh, I just want to write. I'm like, well, that's probably not going to happen anymore. <laughs> so <you> Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I mean, so much, I mean, you know, this is my publishing day was yesterday and I basically for the last six weeks solid, I've just basically been creating content in various ways and, uh, and making myself ac- accessible for content that is being created. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's essentially a huge part of the job. You know, and it's like, then I'm like maintaining my website and making sure that all my social media accounts have the right information. And that's a lot of the job. Yeah. Talk to people <laughs> like me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so, this part is a pleasure. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I always enjoy meeting new, new writers and it's just, it's a lot of fun. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, about your book? Like if people aren't familiar with your writing, like uh, yeah. what's your writing like, love to. what can they expect about your books? Um, so first little thing, I'll just give you a quick synopsis and then I'll talk a little bit about it. It's it's about a group of children who all end up living on this commune when they're like, by the time they're 12, the main, the protagonist and narrator, Saskia, um, you meet her when she's 12 and she goes to live on this commune through a series of kind of strange twists in her life. Um, and this group of five children end up becoming a very tight knit group. And uh, they... Um, they the, the commune pretty quickly devolves into a less a less ideal living situation. It becomes more like a cult um, with a charismatic leader and who's making pretty bad choices. And uh, the adults pretty much abandon them, and they're kind of forced to do something really terrible in a last ditch effort to try to save the cult. And it doesn't work. So the book is in two told in two different sections that go back and forth. The past in which we follow that story and that question is the kind of the arc that is the question in that book is in that part of the book is what did they do? And then in the present day, someone starts to blackmail all of them. They are scattered to the wind. They're very have very different lives. Some of them are still very ensconced in um one of them is very ensconced still in kind of like a very back to the land no possessions kind of movement. And then to various degrees, they're all living other versions of normal American lives and they start to be blackmailed and they have to get back together and they have to go back to the land where they um, first kind of did this terrible thing to confront their blackmailer and figure out what to do. So that question, the arc of that question is 
what will they do? So there's these two questions that are supporting the book um, and you go back and forth in time. And for me, the great pleasure of that is you get to know these people both when they're children and then when they're adults. Um, and of course, there are things that have changed radically about them, but for the most part, they are exactly who they've always been, which is a, something I always love in a book or in life. You know, when you get to go to like a, a you know, a reunion <laughs> or you run into someone you went to middle school with in the grocery store and they look the same and they, their laugh is the same and they mention a joke that they think is funny and you go like, that's exactly the kind of joke you would have told me when you were 12. Um, so for me, that pleasure of the book is really, uh, is it's deep. I loved writing that and I hope it's enjoyable to read. Um, and then there, uh, there's also a lot about the place that they live. May, they, they live on this place called home, which is an abandoned summer camp that they've um, kind of like Jerry rigged to make a, a, community um to various effects and uh that that life there is very much about the wilderness and about the animals and the plants and Saskia our main character learns how to forage from an older woman who's kind of part of the community and that is a very big part of it um the learning how to feed yourself from the land hmm. um which is really fascinating to learn about and so do you uh, I'm so fascinated with cults I just saw the on <laughs> the I think it was on, on the Heaven's Gate. Uh, oh, yeah, I know. I, you saw that documentary. Uh, just binge that one. I was like, it's just so fascinating. Did you? Is that something you were interested in that you wanted to see if you could apply that to a book? or? So, yeah. So I grew up adjacent to a lot of communal living. I, I mean, I obviously lived in a small West African village, which is by nature communal. But in terms of American communal living, I never lived on a commune. But my husband grew up on a, a radical lesbian commune on the Upper West Side, actually, um, where there was a lot of political action. And I have other people from his life and then also from my own life who grew up in communes variously around the country. And um, I was always really fascinated in their stories about what it was to be, a, especially a child in a place like that, where um, adults, the adults in your life have essentially made the decision that, that you know, kind of like normal American culture is broken or doesn't work and you have to. And so you're starting out your life with this idea that you, the only way to live is the way is, is, is kind of a rejection of the American model. Um, and that was really interesting to me. I had this really intense thing happen where my husband and a couple of the people who he grew up with us on the commune got together um, and I was there too for a lunch because someone who had grown up on the commune um, was had come into town and she was older. She had lived on the commune as a teenager, so not as a little child. And that's not to say that you know, it wasn't a very challenging lifestyle and that there weren't some really hard things that happened to my husband and his friends there, but they were really little. They were really small children when they lived there. So it was the only life they knew. And this woman who we hadn't really seen much of, um, she was really upset talking to us about the life that she'd spent there. And she basically said, you know, do you know how much it ruined my life mm -hmm. to basically live in this place where I was taught to believe that everything was wrong about the way Americans were living. And it was my responsibility to stop police violence, right? It was my responsibility to, to, for, to fight for black liberation, but I was surrounded by regular 12 year olds <laughs> who didn't even know what that was. Right. And it was like, 
the stakes were so high for me. And she said, and then of course we just left the commune and suddenly I was expected to be part of that normal life. And I had basically been taught my entire life that that life was awful. And so like, that was a great tragedy for me. And I thought, wow, I really want to write about what that must feel like, you know, to like, to be suddenly have this world that you fought for just be pulled out from under you, you know? And so what's that process for you like? So you have the that idea now in your head, like, wow, I want to write about that. So what's yeah. your process like then? Do you like from the from when you get the idea that you sit down to write it and now that it's published, what's can you walk us through that process? Yeah. So usually it ends up being um kind of a mul- multiple things that come together. So there's that. And then I also knew I have a place is very important in my books. And I know I have to really love a place and know it very well to write about it. Um, and this place that the book is set is um is based on a place where my husband's mother, mother lives now, um, a, a place that's been in his family for many years. And, you know, he and I have known each other for so long that I've been going there for like 25 years. Um, it's a lakeside, just like in, in a small town in Maine. Um, and then there were a couple other elements. I wanted to write about a group of friends. I really, I had a very, in fact, my book is dedicated to a group of friends that I spent time at summer camp with at a day camp who I was so passionately involved in, in, in this. And I, and I wanted to talk about how passionate those friendships are at that age, how deeply loyal you are, how you do anything for those people. Um, and to think about what would happen if an adult took advantage of that idea of you as being this powerful force and then figured out how to use you as a weapon. Um, that was really interesting to me. So those different pieces came together and I started writing this almost as like a symphonic piece with a lot of different voices telling the story. And it became clear to me very quickly that that was just not going to work. There were too many moving parts and we needed some grounding. Um, and in fact, at the time, my writing partner, Emily Rabito, who's a brilliant writer in her own right, um, had read the book and she basically was like, she'd read you know, the first hundred pages of the draft. And she basically pointed to Saskia and she said, this, this is the character. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is the person who the book should be about, not anybody else, you know? Um, And I'm noticing there's a really loud noise. Should I close the door? Are you okay? Can you hear it? No, no, I don't hear it. Okay, good. Um, So she just basically said, you know, this is the character. This is who you need to write. And of course there's always this temptation when you've written like a hundred pages to say like, but I've written a hundred pages. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and she said like, yeah, but like you got to this place where now we know that she's the character you need to write about. So like, you need to write about her. She's the most interesting. She's so weird. And she wrestles. I mean, she, I, I think the conversation around whether women should be likable is ridiculous, but I also understand that it's a conversation that happens a lot. Um, and I think what I really love about Saskia is that on paper, she should be unlikable, but when you get to know her, you love her. And that's really fascinating to me. What is it about someone that makes them maybe seem prickly? Or if you were to know them in real life, you'd think like, that's a crazy lady. Um, but when you're inside her head, you can't help but adore her and want the best things for her. And that became this motivating factor. Once I keyed into that and I understood her, I the, the novel was, you know, was as easy as a novel can be to write. <laughs> Not easy, but <laughs> yeah, never easy, right? <laughs> never easy. It's interesting that you mentioned that about the female uh, protagonist because I've I just thought about that a couple of days ago. I was reading some reviews, and especially for psychological thrillers, 
um it seems like usually the, so the female protagonist you know all the girl on the train and all, that, right, right, all right. those books and i've noticed that a lot, a lot of times when the, the bad reviews are like oh i don't like her at all and she's not there's no and you know really i don't remember reading that about male i mean i'm sure it happens but i don't really remember seeing that too much with a male protagonist you don't do you because because yeah, no, our our world is full of misogyny <laughs> it's based on misogyny and racism so yes of course no one talks about that absolutely yeah, know, it's but, infuriating. It was fascinating though, too, though, is that the, a lot of time though the the reviews are appear to be from women also. So is it? I don't know if it's it's just so weird. It just kind of dawned on me I too. I think that. women. I mean, I think that's why women, white women, voted for Trump because mm. I think women, white women, um, like enact that violence against other women. Mm. Because it's too. It's like internalized misogyny. Like you hate of. Because I think a lot of those women who are like, feel like there have to be rules, they've subscribed their own life to mm. these ideas of rules. And so they can't handle anyone who's not following the same rules. So it's you like the Karen I mean? meltdown. <laughs> right. It's all, it's Karen, I think. I think it is that. Oh, I feel bad for women named Karen now. but <laughs> <laughs> I know I do too. It's so that hard to be named ruined. Karen. <laughs> And it, I know they had the baby names, and that, that number that name has like is way down, <laughs> way down. Like, oh, that's, <laughs> it's a nice name, but yeah, it's kind of like a bad one now. <laughs> mm-hmm, it's rough, <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, back to yeah, sorry for that <laughs> side tangent, but on, on your writing process, so do you, um, do you outline these or do you kind of like write by the seat of your pants? Or so I'm an outliner, but I very strongly believe I think of my outline as like a highway from A to Z, the A being the first word and Z being the last. And that means that if I have that map, I can off-road. So I love having an outline because it makes me feel safe to make radical choices that maybe aren't what I thought I would do because I know where I'm heading, if that makes sense. Um, And with a book like this, with cast of thousands, two different time periods, many plot points, many reveals, um, I don't think I could physically write a book like this if I didn't have at least a little outline, you know? Um, And honestly, an outline helped me a ton during this past year because the pandemic turned everyone's life upside down. But in my particular case, my family left our home of 20 years and moved. And there was an eight month period in which we didn't have a home and we were living actually communally with other people to try to kind of like keep our kids going we didn't have any childcare. We still don't have childcare, you know? So, um, having an outline that meant that I could like make use of every spare moment was the only way I finished this book. And I, I felt I had to, because economically I needed to get paid Mm -hmm. and I wanted this, I knew it would be a summer book and I wanted it to come out this summer. And so I knew I, you know, working backwards, I had to finish it. So, um, I really, really was grateful to my, to the work that I had done in the past. Uh, I was like, you know, that those moments when you're like, thanks past self for, (laughs) for helping me out, uh, that I had this thing that I could really look to and really say, like, I need to go from, you know, this point to this point today. And I, and I know what that is. I got curious too, with the whole pandemic, is that something that you're addressing in your books? Are you planning to address it? Or are you ignoring it because of the COVID fatigue? Well, you know, what's so interesting is this book is really thematically on point with pandemic. I mean, it's about a group of people who are afraid the world's going to end and are afraid of the outside world. In the present day, our main character is living by herself in isolation, um, cut off from the world completely with, with very little contact. And she's she every day she bakes sourdough bread. 
Um, and there are these people in the, you know, when in the past of the commune, it's a group of people who are basically just trying to keep themselves going, trying to survive, making sourdough, you know, making do with the food that they have. And I think especially early in the pandemic, that was definitely something we were all wrestling with. We were all thinking about, um, and, uh, and we made a decision pretty early on in the pandemic, not to make the present day of the story post COVID in an obvious way, just because we didn't know what this would moment would look like. And we knew the book would come out <laughs> mm-hmm. right now. I mean, there's this weird thing that happens with books is that you, it's like a year. Right. So I think I played with it for like one three day period where I was kind of like, do I want to talk about vaccines or do I want to talk about mask wearing or, and we just decided like the book thematically tells enough, enough of a similar story that it can stay on its own and it doesn't need to be um, addressed. And in fact, we thought then that for readers, um, they would be, they would encounter um, thinking and fear that felt familiar without me needing to point out that that's what it was, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know? yeah absolutely. Yeah. So just kind of curious too on the on the tools that you use. Um, I'm always nosy about this. Do you use, you use like Word for your outline and to, for your writing? You use I use Word? Word. I try. I, I sometimes I use Scrivener, mm-hmm. but I have to say I'm old old school. I like just like a word. And my sister is seven years younger than I am, and she's a filmmaker, so she's not like words. You know, writing is not her like her home medium, and she very freely is like, "Ah, Word sucks. It's terrible. It doesn't make any sense." And I think it's kind of like speaking English where like you can, you can look back on, on English and understand, especially if you have, like, I have a four-year-old, so she's learning how to read. And there are all of these times that I find myself going like, I know that doesn't make any sense, but there's a silent K (laughs) before the word no. And it's not the same as the word no opposite of yes. And, you know, and you hear yourself saying, anything like English is insane, but that's the language I speak. Right. And that's how I feel about word. I also love um, working off the page. I mean, we're off the computer. I, I write on the computer. I, I admire writers who write longhand, but I don't have it in me. Um, but I love an art project. And I think it's really lovely to get off the page and to cut up what you've already written and just, and put it together like that, or to, um, use note cards, use different colored pens. I'm a big fan of the stationery store, (laughs) (laughs) uh, staples, you know, like I love to like staple things up and like, you know, um, kind of be messy in a way of thinking out, especially when I'm outlining at the beginning, I, I find it's much easier for me to do that. If I'm off the page or take a huge piece of paper and scribble all over it. Um, yeah. And do you usually have like a set, like, do you like set writing hours or do you write in the same place or you mix it up a little bit? Well, so this year, this past year upended all of that. Oh yeah, that's true. I <laughs> lost my house and I lost my desk and I lost my childcare. Um, and it was quite actually now looking back on it, I would never want to have to do that again, but quite affirming that I, I am quite flexible in ways that I didn't know. Um, that I'm not, that I'm able to access my brain even in less than ideal situations time and again. Um, so ideally, yes, I have uh, time every day that I can work. I find that I'm really, you know, I, when, let's say my children 
are off happily at school and um, I have nine hours to devote to my work every day, which is not even probably true if they're at school, <laughs> but let's say that it happens. Um, I'm really only good for about three or four hours at the most at my peak when I'm like cooking on a story and I'm just clipping along. I can't really do much creative work beyond that because I, my brain just gets so tired and then I start to do damage to the process. So um, actually this job is surprisingly great for, for being a parent um, because I, you know, when your children have childcare, because um, there I can get a full day of work done and still accomplish other parts of my own job and then other parts of, of jobs for my family in a day realistically when things are at their most ideal. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that. Cause that's uh, something I, I would imagine if someone's not a writer, they don't, but to like three, four hours or like, you know, when you put out 2000, 3000, 4000, 5000 word days, it really does drain you. It's kind of weird. It's exhausting. But it does, yeah. You're just like kind of like in a daze after that. <laughs> and you have to, I mean, and that's the thing that's interesting about writing a novel is it's really a marathon. It's not a sprint. So you have to give yourself, I mean, I have, I have a lot of days, you know, Jamie Attenberg has a great project, a thousand words of summer. And I find that for me, that's a great goal. Um, a thousand words a day. And then with the surprise extra, sometimes I get to 1400 and I go like, Oh, who knew, um, is a great goal to hit. I've done, um, NaNoWriMo a couple times and never ended up with a book from that process, but just to kind of as an exercise. And I find that pace to be punitive. Like I think, I think trying to write 1500 words, or maybe it's even more than that, 1700 words a day, every day for a month, it, it, it undoes for me the benefits. So I find, I think it's more like maybe hitting a thousand words and always kind of going over for um, a work week and then having some time off. I'm a big believer in the work week. I think it's great. I think, I think you need time off, <laughs> mm -hmm. I, you know, to read and to just daydream and to hang out with the people you love and do other stuff. Like that's what makes, um, that's also when I solve a lot of problems in my writing. And if I were just always sitting, looking at the page, I think I would have less of a chance to solve those problems. I, I did an interview yesterday and someone asked in the, asked me um, in the Q and a, what do you do when the words don't come? And I said, you know, I think that's actually always a sign that I need to listen to, which is that uh, you can't always force good writing and you shouldn't, right? There are times when you're on a deadline and you think like, well, this is the best I'm going to be able to come up with. But those moments for me are always about um, kind of sprinting to the finish. And in a process like writing a novel, if words aren't coming, it usually means that I need a break or that what I'm trying to write is actually not working, which also means I need a break um, because I need some time away from it to actually have the perspective to see, oh, this choice that I've made is just not the right choice. And also, I wonder too with the... Um... As a reader, what kind of books did you like to read before you became a novelist and what kind oh, of writers question. have influenced you? Oh, I love that question. I mean, I love reading. Yeah. <laughs> I love reading. So I, I'm going to think about books that I can tell you that I love. So I kind of, I, one of the things that's made me really honored in this time is that the book, Fierce Little Thing, has gotten now three 
review comparisons to Donna Tartt's work. And I love her work. And I think even when she doesn't follow through on the promise of the book, the book's always magnificent anyway. Like I loved the goldfinch. I think it's a giant mess in many ways. I think those first 50 pages are brilliant. And then I think that there's the stuff that's in Vegas for pages and pages and pages. It's like, you know, I think she could have used an editor, um, but I didn't mind reading them. Right. Like I loved her. So that's a huge honor. I also love Kate Atkinson's work. Um, she's really amazing. And, uh, and I love her Jackson Brody series, but I also love um, life after life and God among ruins. I think those books are genius. I'm a big fan of the, of the older British ladies. So I love, um, Pat Barker, the regeneration trilogy. Have you ever read that? No, it's I haven't. Brilliant. It's about World War One and shell shock. And um it and it's just, I mean, it's truly a knockout. It's just amazing. I love Hilary Mantel, um, who's just a genius. Like that that her series um about uh, why am I not going to remember his name, but her recent series, I just think is incredible. Um, she's just so smart. And so uh, on top of things, A.S. Byatt, I love, I really am a fan of older <laughs> British women. <laughs> um, but of course there's many, many, many other writers and many contemporary writers who I adore too. But I would say that probably coming up as a writer, those books really influenced me because they, or those writers, because they write really juicy plot, but I, maybe as a product of having been part of the British school system, mm. their prose is just remarkable. Like you can just like reading any of those books, it's just like butter. Like you just go like, oh, here I am. And you're just going to take care of me. And you, you just, the language is just so exquisite. You can't, you know, you, you just want to be inside of the the words of this person who's just giving it to you. And I love that. Yeah. And also um, the, I, I want to mention uh, the cover for fierce little thing is really cool. Thank you. you. Like, how exciting was that when you first got that? Cause I know you don't have much input on that, but <laughs> I was thrilled. I mean, yeah. again, I will say that my editor is so great because she basically said, what are your, what are your hopes and dreams for a cover? What do you want? And I will do everything to, you know, if it makes sense to me, I'll do everything to fight for that. And my cover for Bittersweet, which is my New York Times bestseller, um, is a kind of, this is like the dark counterpoint to that cover. It's interesting because it's two different publishing houses, but they clearly, um, with First Little Thing, they really were trying to get at that same feeling. Uh, Bittersweet is this golden cover. It's, um, they have a shine on it. So it kind of sparkles and it's this house on the other side of a lake in golden light. And you just think like, I want to go there, you know, mm -hmm. oh, I want to go to that place. And the, the, um, the font though is very foreboding. It's almost looks like teeth. Um, and so first little thing is like very, very dark with these pine woods behind it and a house on the opposite lake, uh, the opposite shore of a lake. And, um, then the, the, the letters are these really big toothy letters that go kind of like are terrifying that have like a toothy quality to them um, that are in some ways um, the word fierce is actually behind some pine trees, the tops of some pines. And I just, the second I saw it, I was like, I love it. And the only note I had, which the designer was wonderful to help me with was that the, I felt that the, um, the shoreline looked a little too 
um, well maintained. There was like a picket fence Mm. and the roof looked a little nicer and there was like, um, like signage. And I just said like, I, it needs to look decrepit because this is like an old rundown summer camp. It can't look like a place we necessarily would want to go on vacation. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm seeing, I'm, I'm looking at it now and I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, with a little nice picket fence and stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, be kind of like, oh, I want to go there. This is yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wanted it to be ominous. I wanted yeah. you to think like, what is the fierce little thing, and yeah. what is it in that house? <laughs> yeah, very, very cool, very cool. Well, uh, so fascinating the whole how the whole process works. <laughs> Isn't it so interesting? I mean, there's yeah. so much that I think that is you know. Now that this is my fifth book, I feel like I have a sense of kind of the rhythm of that year before publication, and there's so much stuff that happens behind the scenes that. When you first start out, you have no idea how it works. It's very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> and so what are you working on now? Well, that's a great question. I'm actually, uh, so I have a couple of co-writers and a production company and we're developing Bittersweet as a, as a series, which has mm-hmm. been really a fun process. Um, and we're, and you know, we're, we're about to start pitching, which is great. Um, it's such a different world that TV world, learning how to tell a story in the right, in the right way. Um, and that's been a really fun process. And I'm also starting another novel. I actually have, I've written about 50 pages of a new novel. Um, and I'm not totally convinced it's the right next book, but I'm really tantalized by it. Um, and then there's another book I've just started thinking about. Sometimes what happens is that I think I'm going to write one book and then I start having fantasies about another book. It's kind of like having an, a love affair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I start writing that other book. And then what often happens is I realize that it's actually the same book <laughs> that I just didn't see part of it. That well, that's sense. good. So, so then you're able to merge them too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Usually then I can put them together. Yeah. So we'll see. I'm not quite sure, but I'm still in that um, fun, you know, I really, uh, getting first little thing out into the world has been my main focus. And I find that I'm someone who can't really do creative work when I'm in this mode of, mm-hmm. of getting the word out. Um, you know, I can do it when it's like not full court press time, you know, mm-hmm. maybe in a month or two when I'm doing a podcast a week and, you know, kind of like I can, I can make it so that one day a week is a day that I'm doing publicity stuff. And then the rest of the time I'm working on writing, I can do it, but I can't really be creative when I have this hat on. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Cause it's like nonstop. Uh, yeah. The publicity hat on you. <laughs> yeah. And it's also like, just like the putting yourself out there, yeah. you know, I mean, these two very different uh, impulses in the, in the brain. You know, one of them is like this deeply internal me alone in a room. If you make a movie about someone writing a novel, it's like the most most boring movie you could ever see because it's just some random person sitting there staring out the window and then typing. Um, But uh, but this part of it, right, is like having a conversation with people over and over again. And it's some it's kind of the same conversation with really interesting, different takes on it depending on who you're who you're doing that work with um and so that that's like deeply extroverted you know yeah i can imagine the pitching too like you say you're pitching the series is that uh, with the pandemic now is it mostly through video or is it in person yeah so that's the thing that's pretty i mean you know um our producers are basically like look we don't know what the fall is gonna look like because i think probably now because of delta 
this was a few months ago when we were talking about mm-hmm. this, they were kind of like, maybe you'll fly to LA and maybe it'll be in the room. I'm thinking now likely because of the Delta variant that it'll probably be a Zoom thing, which in some ways is actually kind of lovely <laughs> because, uh, you know, you know, you only have to look, I mean, especially as a woman, you think about this, you only have to look presentable from like the waist up <laughs> and, um, you can have kind of notes on the main screen where you're doing it. Um, and you, you, uh, you have, you, you have control over the, um, AV part of things because you're like throwing, we actually like to just do a screen share. So our, hmm production company's assistant basically handles the, the slides. Um, so that's like a very, uh, it feels, it's still scary. I'm not going to yeah. like, you know, it's still a scary thing because you're pitching to like, you know, really important people at really important streaming platforms, but, um, then you get to leave <laughs> and then yeah. you're just back in your own space. Whereas like, I would love someday to pitch in person, um, but it seems a lot scarier to like drive to HBO and then park and then yeah. go inside and then get a pass and then ride up the elevator and then wait in the, you know, like that seems like terrifying to me. Yeah. It's um, a job interview times 10. <laughs> right. Right. And then you're in the room with these people. And that the difference of that is that you then have to have really it completely memorized. So a pitch is like between like 25 and 30 minutes long. Oh, wow. So it's like a, you know, a really in-depth, and, you know, this is a book that I wrote and now I've developed it, this show for more than two years, but I'm still scared at the thought of like, if you were to say, do the pitch for me right now, I would be like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) What are the important elements you need to know? You know? Um, So it's kind of, it's a different world. Yeah, crazy. Okay, yeah. well, the last uh, question I like to ask my guests always, and yeah. I know it's kind of a cliche, but any advice for aspiring writers? Because they're out there. I have subscribers versus aspiring writers. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that, I think that the biggest, most important quality to have if you want to be a writer is persistence, and I think that that is an underrated quality. <laughs> You know, if you keep showing up and you work really hard and you keep just saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm here, I'm here, um, that eventually you find your place in in this in this industry. And um, this is an industry with many gatekeepers. I think even if you're self-publishing, there are gatekeepers <laughs> because what you need in order for people to read your books is for someone to help you tell them about, tell those people that your book exists. Um, and so um, the challenge is being persistent even when you feel absolutely crushed by disappointment, <laughs> which is a lot of this job, right? Oh, yeah. A lot of the job is feeling like I worked so hard on this thing. I worked harder than I've ever worked in my life and no one read it or no one bought it or no one wants to publish it or, you know, no one thinks it's good enough, right? Whatever those things are, that will, that is guaranteed to happen in a writing career. So I think the, the, that concept of grit, which is something I really try to, um, build in my children because I think that's true of life in many ways, but especially if you're going to be an artist is so important. Um, it, it's kind of a mix of hubris and 
<laughs> it's like it's like being super confident in yourself and also being an idiot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? To think like to think that this would be a good choice to just, you know, and I and I was talking to my sister um, a couple of months ago when I had finally handed in fierce little thing, like the final, final draft. Um, there's so many months where you read the book and you edit it and then you send it off and then you get notes back and you read the book and edit it and you send it off and you get notes back. And by the time you finish with that process, you're so done with your book. You think like, <laughs> Oh my God, this is horrible. And I think Zadie Smith said something wonderful about it. It's like, it's so frustrating that just at the moment when you've read your book so many times that you know, all the ways in which it has completely failed. That is when you're supposed to go into the world and say like, Hey, buy my book. It's fantastic. Um, but I think that there is something really, uh, you know, fun about the fact that when you when you get to that place you actually then want to write another book which is what happened with my sister where <laughs> she was talking to me and she's like oh my gosh you turn it in this is amazing ah oh, you can finally breathe like what next and I was like well I started to think about another novel and she just looked at me and she was like it's a mental illness you have a mental illness. yeah we're insane <laughs> and I was like I just started laughing I was like yeah you're right She's like, you think you want to do this again? Do you remember what the last three years of your life have been like? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. So, well. It's a good note. But I think persistence. I mean, I really do. I think like, I think persistence is in some ways more important than quote unquote talent because it's that 10,000 hour thing. I mean, it's not just true in terms of what you give to the outside world, but what you give to your work. It's like if you show up every day or whenever you can and you put in that time and you get those 10,000 hours of learning how to be a writer, you will be a writer, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because you'll have that practice. Um, and, and I think that, you know, you don't, someone who doesn't want to do that isn't going to do it, if that makes sense. You know, like it's all well and good to say, I mean, I could say I want to be a pole vaulter <laughs> and I might, I might be able to do that for like 70 hours. And then at some point, my body or my mind would go like, it's not worth it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If it was easy, everybody would be doing this. Right. <laughs> That's true. It's so glamorous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so where can the people find you? Let's say you have a website. Yeah. My website is MirandaBW.com. I'm also um, really active on Instagram. My handle is MirandaBW1. And you can find me on all the social media sites from my website, but um yeah, I mean, I love I love interacting with people, and I will also say that I love doing book clubs over Zoom. It's so nice now that people are so. Um, one upside of the pandemic is I feel like people didn't even know what Zoom was a year ago, and yeah. now people are so savvy with it, yeah. uh, and it's not so crazy to think of doing that. So, um, you know, I love connecting with people, and I love it when people email me. So, please be in touch. All right, great. Well, thank you so much, Miranda, and the uh, fierce little thing. By the time uh, you listeners are listening to this it'll be out so go get that thank you so much thank you for having me it was a wonderful conversation thank you thank you for listening to meet the thriller author i hope you enjoyed my conversation with one of your favorite writers of mysteries and thrillers or if this episode's guest is new to you i hope you give their books a chance helping listeners discover new authors and books is one of the coolest outcomes of doing this podcast 
As always, you can head over to thrillerauthors.com to sign up to my Thrilling Reads email list. That way you won't miss out on any great deals in thriller and mystery books. You can also check out all the links and resources in the show notes for this episode over at thrillerauthors.com. And also please do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already and leave a rating and review wherever it is that you're listening to this uh, show. If you have done that already, I thank you. Uh, I really do appreciate your support. For my other links to my author website, social media haunts, and more, uh, check out thrillingreads.com forward slash links. All my links will be uh, on that uh, page. So that's it for this episode. Uh, See you next time and stay safe out there.